Okay. This is uh, Dr. Peter Ramirez, editor-in-chief of the International Journal of Gynecological Cancer. And today I have the great pleasure of speaking with Emma Crosby, who is at uh, the Gynecologic Oncology Research Group Division of Cancer Sciences, Faculty of Biology, Medicine, and Health at the University of Manchester, St. Mary's Hospital, Manchester, UK. And she is the author of a recently published uh, manuscript in Nature Communications titled Diagnostic Accuracy of Cytology for the Detection of Endometrial Cancer in Urine and Vaginal Samples. So, Emma, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for taking the time to discuss this really great manuscript with us. Thank you. Thank you for asking me. It's a pleasure. Of course. So, Emma, I wanted to um, ask you uh, first, um, you know, I wanted to start by certainly discussing, you know, why investigate new approaches in the detection of endometrial cancer? You know, some might say, aren't we already doing really well with endometrial biopsy and transvaginal ultrasound and even uh, routinely used hysteroscopy in many countries? So, why, um, why should we explore new options of uh, detecting this type of malignancy? Well, that's a really great question. So thank you for asking that. Um, certainly, these are excellent diagnostic tests, but they are invasive and they're expensive and they're unpleasant. Mm. Um, and most women tolerate them extremely well, but some of them find them quite traumatizing and painful. And since only about 5 to 10% of women with abnormal bleeding after the menopause actually have sinister underlying pathology, we wanted to test a test that could triage women for urgent invasive investigations while safely reassuring women with benign causes for their bleeding. So in other words, we don't think we should do away with all these really important and accurate diagnostic tests that we currently have, but rather find a way of limiting their use in women who ultimately do not have uh, cancer. Yeah. And Emma, one of the things that uh, we, we were discussing uh, among our, our colleagues here is um, how would one go about detecting endometrial cancer cells from vaginal cytology or cervical cytology? Uh, what evidence do we have so far in the literature of uh, likelihood of finding endometrial tumor cells there? So that's also a great question. Um, there was a systematic review that was published last year in Cancer Cytopathology uh, by Laura Costas and her group that actually looked at routine cervical cytology for the diagnosis of endometrial cancer. And actually there is some evidence that a routinely taken cervical sample can find cancer cells, uh, particularly in people with type 2 more aggressive endometrial cancers, but also some of the type 1 uh, less aggressive endometrial cancer. So there is some track record. Um, however, people have not really in earnest investigated this before. Um, so we basically are the first, I think, to systematically look in urine and vaginal fluid for malignant endometrial cells by cytology. Um, and this followed on from some case reports that showed you can see endometrial cancer cells in urine. Um, and we wanted to look in a systematic way to see whether or not this could actually form the basis for a non-invasive test for endometrial cancer. So it, there is emerging data um, that it, you can find malignant cells in these biofluids. 
um, but nobody's really systematically tested it as a diagnostic test before. Yeah, and and uh, following along with that and discussing your your paper with one of our fellows recently, uh, you know, the, the the question that came up was, well, what evidence do we have that there's tumor DNA uh, present in voided urine? Like, how, you know, the, the, the direct question is, how does it get there? Sure. So we think that it's because um, endometrial cancers shed tumor cells. So because of the biological continuity between the uterine cavity and the vagina, um, we think that tumor cells are shed um, alongside postmenopausal bleeding. And of course, this is how the patient presents. So she presents with abnormal bleeding. Mm-hmm. And we think, or at least we, we hypothesized, that the, the blood that she's shedding actually contains cells that have been uh, shed off the tumor itself. Um, and then, of course, we know when women are menstruating that they often have hematuria. And it's not that they've got actual hematuria. Mm-hmm. It's that the, the urine has been contaminated by uterine blood. Um, and so we hypothesized that a similar thing might be happening in women with postmenopausal bleeding and endometrial cancer, that you might actually be able to see the shed endometrial tumor cells in voided urine because it contaminates the urinary flow when a woman goes to the bathroom to pass water. Yeah, amazing and great. Uh, and so, so now that obviously then brings us to um, some of the details regarding uh, the study. Um, and uh, the first question is, what, what type of vaginal sampling was used in this study and, and what were the reasons to choose uh, that specific method? Sure. So we initially looked at um, testing a whole load of different devices to collect the endometrial cancer cells from the vagina. So we used you know, a routine cervical broom that would be used to take a cervical sample for psycho- cervical screening. Mm-hmm. We used an introital swab. We used uh, a self sampling vaginal swab and we also tried a Delphi screener which is the device that we eventually used for this publication um, and that is a screening device that has a little reservoir of saline um, and essentially the device goes into the posterior fornix of the vagina and then by pressing the plunger you can release the saline from within the reservoir which bathes at uh, the top of the vagina and the cervix and then as you take your finger off the plunger, it reaccumulates the fluid back in the reservoir. And that enables you to collect a fluid sample of the cells that might be in, at the top of the vagina and in the cervix. Um, and we thought that this was a better way of doing it because obviously when you collect a sample uh, using a brush or a broom, you only collect cells from the, the area that you, that you are in direct contact with, if mm-hmm. you like. Whereas this saline device is a kind of lavage principle that washes any cells that might be anywhere in the vicinity um, enables you to collect them in a reservoir. Um, and this device had previously been used for cervical screening um, and had been shown to collect four times as many cells um, as a, uh, a broom or a brush that might be used for the same indication. So that was the main reason why we wanted to use this device. That's fantastic. All right. So then now, um, tell us about the, the study uh, population and uh, the number of patients that were included in the, in the study. Sure. So we looked in a sort of case control study, if you like. So we looked at um, just over 100 women who were having surgery for endometrial cancer. So they'd already had all their invasive diagnostic procedures and they were on the wait list for surgery. So they were approximately two weeks after they'd had their diagnostics done um, and they were um, ready for surgery that day. Um, The other group of women were women who were presenting for the first time with abnormal bleeding after the menopause. 
So these were women who'd not yet had any of their routine diagnostics. Um, and the advantage of this was that we were blinded to their eventual cancer outcomes. So within this group of women with abnormal bleeding, we eventually diagnosed seven cancers. Uh, but we didn't know when we took the samples that those women would have cancer. So we were truly blinded to the cancer outcomes as we took the samples. Um, the cytopathologists who looked at all the samples were blinded throughout. Mm -hmm. So they didn't know uh, that, a, you know, that it was a case or a control, if you like, when they looked at the samples. Um, and we were quite interested in taking the, the prospective cohort of women with postmenopausal bleeding um, before they'd had any of their routine diagnostics because we didn't want any of the routine diagnostics to potentially uh, contaminate the sample. So in other words, when we take an endometrial biopsy or we do a hysteroscopy, we inevitably dislodge tumor cells. Um, and we didn't want to be collecting those dislodged tumor cells and then saying that this test could be accurate. We wanted to know whether or not a woman would have these cells naturally shedding and could be collected without any of those diagnostics. So I think, it, again, it highlights, and we have uh, a journal, uh, journal fellows, and one of the things that we always talk about is uh, what really stands out in, in a good study is the methodology, and, and I'm really glad that you went through those details and, and, again, highlights how you looked into assuring that you targeted all the, those potential variables that could have impacted the, the outcome. So thank you for providing those, uh, those details. And now, um, Emma, if you wanted to then highlight, what are some of the main findings of the study? What were the um, take-home messages, if you will? So we were really excited to see that you can find endometrial cancer cells in a self-collected uh, urine sample, and in a vaginal sample collected with the Delphi screener in about 90% of women with endometrial cancer. So that means in nine out of the 10 women that we looked at, we could find by cytology endometrial cancer cells simply look by looking down the microscope. So this was an incredibly exciting finding because sometimes the urine sample was very clear um, and sometimes the vaginal sample was clear. And it was hard to imagine that they would contain a significant number of cancer cells, but they did. Um, so that was the one hand, you know, very exciting that the sensitivity of the test appeared to be really excellent. But on the other side, we were really, really pleased that we didn't see a whole load of cells in the women who eventually didn't get diagnosed with cancer. In other words, the specificity was also really good uh, because, it, you know, it could have been that you saw these kinds of cells in everybody's sample. But actually, that wasn't the case. And there was only around 10% of women with abnormal bleeding who did not receive a cancer diagnosis that had equivocal cells that turned out not to be malignant. So it, on the face of it, we seem to have stumbled upon a test that is both sensitive and specific for the detection of endometrial cancer. Uh, and not only that, but it's um, a test that is done that causes no pain whatsoever, you know, fully non-invasive, um, and potentially something that could be done you know, from a, in a primary care setting. So in the community, when a woman first presents with abnormal bleeding to her family doctor, it could be a sample that could be collected at that opportunity um, and therefore potentially safely reassure her that there was no significant pathology and avoid the need for the invasive diagnostics that we talked about earlier. That's fantastic. And, and I think, again, highlights the, um, the, the, the innovative thinking in how we can um, get to different strategies uh, to achieve uh, 
the school, obviously. Um, and now, Emma, what, one of the um, uh, subsequent series of questions uh, uh, I'll ask, uh, this, these are questions that were directly from our um, uh, International uh, Journal of Gynecologic Cancer Fellows. Is uh, This one is actually coming from uh, Austria. Uh, and her question is, uh, do you think that this strategy would have similar sensitivity and specificity in a population of premenopausal women? So that is a great question. I mean, the reason why we focused our study on postmenopausal women was because this was really a proof of concept study. So we know that um, endometrial cancer usually presents with postmenopausal bleeding, you know, about 90% of the time. Um, but we do see it in premenopausal women. But actually, the majority of times that they have abnormal bleeding, it isn't due to endometrial cancer. And so we were worried if we focused on premenopausal women that we would need to sample an enormous number of people in order to be sufficiently powered to find, you know, the five, six or seven that did have cancer. Um, so it was because it was a proof of concept that we avoided premenopausal women in the prospective cohort of people with abnormal bleeding. Mm -hmm. But actually in the, um, the cases, so the women with known cancer, as you say, around 8% of them were premenopausal, and we found that the tests performed just as well. Mm. So it, it wasn't that we didn't find abnormal cells in premenopausal women, um, and therefore we would have every expectation that we would still be able to find these cells in a cohort of women who were presenting with endometrial cancer before the menopause. The issue is that they would also be expected to have benign endometrial cells, mm -hmm. uh, you know, in the vaginal fluid or in urine, uh, particularly when menstruating. And it's whether or not cytology is good enough to identify the atypical or the clearly malignant cells rather than simply glandular cells uh, within these biofluids. Yeah. So I guess that's the next really important question. You know, how specific could this test be in a group of women with premenopausal uh, endometrial cancer? Great. And then the next question also from one of our fellows in Italy, and you may not have the, the answer for this, but um, I wanted to propose the question anyway. Uh, was there any correlation, as far as you know, between the positive urine uh, cytology and positive peritoneal cytology washings in endometrial cancer patients? Okay, so we didn't look at this specifically. Um, and I want to point out that the majority of the cases in our study were actually low-grade, early-stage endometrial cancers. So these were, you know, grade 1, grade 2, stage 1A endometrial cancers in whom we would not expect to find positive peritoneal cytology. Um, and we don't think that the mechanism by which the urine contains endometrial cancer cells is through renal excretion of these cells. So we think it isn't a systemic phenomena. We think it is literally um, contamination of the urine with uterine bleeding uh, that contains malignant cells. So we, don't, we think it's a more of a local contamination thing rather than a systemic thing. So I, I'm not sure that we would expect to find that kind of correlation. I see. And then um, one of the follow-up questions is, uh, as uh, many um, institutions uh, perform uh, routine ultrasounds on uh, postmenopausal patients, one of the questions from uh, Spain was, uh, from a practical point of view, it would be interesting to know if these rates of sensitivity and specificity are potentially maintained in postmenopausal women who are not symptomatic, who are just found to have a thickened endometrium on routine ultrasound. Yeah, so of course, this is the ultimate ambition for this test because 
What we really like it to be able to do is to serve as a screening tool. So at the moment, there are no suitable screening tools other than transvaginal ultrasound scan, um, which isn't very uh, specific. It's pretty sensitive in postmenopausal women, but it's not very good for premenopausal women because of the natural fluctuation of the endometrium with menstrual cycles. So actually, if this could serve as a screening tool and detect endometrial cancer cells in these biofluids in asymptomatic women, then that would be incredible. Uh, because, for example, we have high-risk patients, uh, such as women with Lynch syndrome, in whom you know we currently do annual uh, gynecological surveillance, which usually takes the form of a transvaginal ultrasound scan, hysteroscopy and biopsy. But actually, if instead, those women could simply send a sample of their urine from their home to the laboratory to be checked for endometrial cancer cells, and that kind of test could work, then ultimately we would have a fantastic uh, new way of looking after our patients with Lynch syndrome. So that is the ultimate ambition. Um, whether or not it, it works requires, obviously, more research. Um, and we are currently conducting a prospective study looking at women uh, with postmenopausal bleeding. Um, but the next study, I think, is one where we test it as a screening tool in high-risk groups. And that could include... Uh, postmenopausal women with asymptomatic thickened endometrium and high-risk patients like women with Lynch syndrome. Yeah, that would be great to see a results of uh, such study. The next question comes from the same fellow, and I said, well, you know, this is sort of a sidestepping from the subject, but he was interested, and he said, I'd love to hear her thoughts uh, on the whether these, these results or these strategies could be extrapolated to younger asymptomatic patients for the detection of cervical cancer and therefore potentially screening in underdeveloped countries? Yeah, so I mean, we already know that HPV um, is an excellent biomarker for cervical screening. Um, and so currently, the way that we do it in the UK is we take a directed cervical sample and we test it for HPV. Um, but we know that vaginal self-sampling, so either using this Delphi screening device or using you know, a, a vaginal swab, is just as effective as cervical sampling for high-risk HPV detection. And there's also a lot of work and a lot of interest looking at the effectiveness of urine HPV testing for cervical screening. And there's a lot of activity in this area because it's looking extremely promising. So I imagine that this could be used as a screening tool for cervical cancer. Um, and particularly a urine HPV test could be enormously beneficial in countries that don't have screening programs because it cuts out the need for you know, a, a healthcare professional to take a sample. It removes some of the cultural barriers to getting undressed and having an intimate sample procured. Mm -hmm. um, so ultimately, it'd be great if you know, this could also lend itself as a cervical cancer screening tool. Yeah. And um, one of the uh, subsequent questions uh, was regarding the evaluation of the cytology. Um, and the question was, uh, what was the rate of inter-observer variability with regards to the analysis of cytology samples? Um, and how could this impact the, the results? And I think ultimately this gets to the question of how easy is this to reproduce throughout multiple institutions? Yeah, and that, that's a really important consideration. So we, I'm very lucky to work with some truly brilliant cytopathologists, <laughs> um, and they agreed with each other 95% of the time. Uh, but they are, you know, extremely uh, skilled, and they have a lot of, you know, they, they see, look at a lot of samples. 
And certainly they've had um, an opportunity to have a bit of a learning curve when learning about endometrial cancer cytology. Um, so clearly this isn't something that you could just roll out immediately. You would need to train the workforce mm-hmm. and it is a subjective art. Um, and actually, you know, that is the limitation of cytology. And it's one of the reasons why we've moved to high-risk HPV testing as the primary test for cervical screening because it doesn't require that, you know, it's an objective test, you know, an automated test that doesn't require skill in the same way that cytology does. So I think that is one of the limitations. But on the flip side, we do have a skilled cytology workforce um, who are actually being less used now because of primary uh, HPV screening for cervical screening. Um, and actually, you know, perhaps they could lend their skills to endometrial cancer cytology um, with a bit of training. Um, and, you know, clearly there would need to be guidelines drawn up about what constituted a malignant looking sample uh, and so on. So there is work to be done, but, uh, you know, we have a workforce already primed and ready to go. And, and Emma, is that just as a follow-up to that, do you think that this will be something that uh, potentially could be automated and now with all of the artificial intelligence that this could be a potential tool to uh, integrate into this evaluation? Yeah, absolutely. And that, again, is something that we're looking at. So, you know, are there immunomarkers? that stain malignant cells and I enable us to be clear that these are malignant rather than benign endometrial cells, for example. So could there be an adjunct to routine cytology in the form of immunohistochemistry? Um, and could that then be used you know, in an automated way using artificial intelligence that picked up signals or even just the morphology? You know, Could that be detected using automated methods so as to remove that subjectivity and enable you know, high throughput um, and and much more instantaneous results that weren't workload dependent. Yeah. So the next question is one that I always uh, ask the author, sort of like as we come into the uh, conclusion of the discussion, is how have the results of this study uh, impacted your practice? How should it impact our practice? Um, and, and where do you see this taking us in terms of how we evaluate and discuss uh, screening for our patients? So I think we're not yet in a state, you know, we can't yet on the basis of this one study say that it should influence our practice and change what we currently do. However, I do think that it's an incredibly promising looking test that needs to be further evaluated. It needs to be evaluated in a greater number of women. It needs to be evaluated in different centers with different cytologists. Um, So there is a lot of scope here to investigate this further. But I think at the moment, these results are really quite preliminary. You know, this is an exciting discovery that offers hope. Mm -hmm. But I don't think we're at a stage yet where we can actually roll this out into clinical practice. It's really kind of like a proof of principle Mm -hmm. that you can find these cancer cells in urine and vaginal fluid. And actually, even if that's all it is and cytology turns out not to be the answer, Uh, you know, at least shows us that most of these cancers are shedding tumor material uh, through the lower genital tract and into the urine. So, you know, there could be other biomarkers that we could be looking for, protein or DNA or methylation biomarkers that, again, would enable a more automated test. Um, But, you know, perhaps one that could be even more sensitive and specific, particularly if there were a panel of markers that we looked at. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, it's a very exciting discovery um, but perhaps we, you know, we need to think more about what, what ide- our ideal test would be um, and more research is needed. 
Yeah, so then this is a perfect lead into my final question. Then if you were to uh, projecting forward uh, as your ideal next study uh, for the evaluation of, of patients with abnormal bleeding, um, what, what, what would that look like? So, you know, this is the exciting potential of this test. So really, in the UK, what happens is if women experience bleeding after the menopause, they go and see their primary care doctor, their GP, who then examines them and decides whether or not they need to be referred for urgent transvaginal ultrasound scan, hysteroscopy biopsy. So the, the hope would be that a tool like this could be used at that very first meeting with the patient who's complaining of symptoms. So as well as looking at her cervix to check she doesn't have cervical cancer, could we collect a urine and or vaginal sample and send that off for cytology? And could that enable us to reduce the number of unnecessary referrals that are expensive, time-consuming, cause anxiety, and are often unpleasant for women to go through? You know, could we use this as a way of triaging our women uh, for these invasive tests that are necessary if there is pathology, but not necessary if there isn't. So, you know, that's, that's the hope for the future. Fantastic. Professor Emma Crosby, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you. Really uh, fantastic work, uh, really innovative. Congratulations on, uh, on this achievement. Uh, congratulations on your publication in uh, Nature Communications. And uh, thank you so much for your contribution to all women with gynecological cancer. Thank you very much.